Hello, and welcome to Luminato's Illuminating Ideas program. I'm Alex Rand, the curator of this series. Today we're listening to Artists in Conversation, and we're joined by leading festival artist Edward Bertinsky and climate activist Alinor Rougeau as they discuss the very real environmental crisis our world is facing today. Over the course of the next hour or so, you'll hear them discuss their own personal histories to climate activism, how the pandemic has shifted their work, and their thoughts and guidance for the future. This conversation was recorded in late May of 2021. I hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Ed Bertinsky. I'm a photographic artist. I've been working on themes around humans' relationship to nature over the past 40 years. I've recently been asked by the Luminato Festival in the last year and a half, it was supposed to happen earlier, uh, last summer, to do uh, a public work in the square at the Young Dundas Square, which is a center of commerce for Canada. And I decided to do something called In the Wake of Progress, which pulls together the 40 years of my work and sequencing it in such a way to tell a story about how we've gone from a world of nature. And of course, Canada was at once all forests and including Dundas Square was all forest at one point. And I take you from the forest to how we've transformed that forest into the world that we inhabit and that we create from metropolises to small cities. So I take the viewer through a journey uh, with fabulous music that was scored. Isque, a uh, First Nation singer, is adding her vocals to the piece. And then it's going to go into the international scene as a indoor event as well as uh, an immersive event. So I'm very fortunate and lucky to be chosen for this project. And I love taking my work outside of the gallery space and into the public. So, so it's, uh, it's an exciting time. So, hi, really glad to be here. Um, my name is Adyana or Ali. I'm a climate justice activist. I'm also very recently graduated from the University of Toronto. Uh, I studied economics and public policy. And I'm soon going to be working more uh, full-time on questions of climate justice, uh, energy transitions in Canada. But my work is has been for the past three years very much focused on climate justice and especially on mobilizing youth around these questions. The big, more the sensational part was around the youth climate strikes and getting young people in the street or getting out of the schools. But a lot of the work has also been in doing workshops, for example, teaching young people how to use their voice to kind of share their concerns around climate or around environmental disasters more generally, maybe. There's also been quite a bit of work done with institutions around divestment, around changing the way they interact with the environment. So a lot of it has been at the intersection of more disruption uh, of business as usual and then education and raising awareness. Um, and so right now, these are really the, the two focuses I have in my activism life. The work I've done uh, around the climate activism and what we as humans are doing to the planet really began to occur to me in the early 80s, 81, 82. I started photographing mining and I had the opportunity 
as a kind of young student putting myself through school to see industry at scale, to see the large-scale mining and large-scale factories as I was putting myself through school. And I never thought of that as a subject matter, but it started to occur to me when I started looking at the population growth. And I started looking at the technology in these large machines that were extracting iron ore and copper out of, uh, out of these large open pit mines, that looking at the trajectory of our popu- human population back in the 80s, which was showing, you know, going 7, 8, 10 billion. And at that time, 40 years ago, we were just north of 3 billion people. And I thought, combined with the technology we have today, with bringing that many new citizens into the world, that we are eventually going to hit a a, a point uh, where what is now plentiful will move to scarcity. And that the scale of what I'm seeing today with 3 billion people will only continue to increase over time. So it was a commitment that I made 40 years ago to one idea. And that idea is how are we as humans uh, reshaping nature? How are we taking those things from nature and turning them into the things that we need to survive? And I believed at that time that if I just stuck to that one idea, that over 40 years, a compendium of these places, and and all my research took me to the the largest examples of taking, the largest uh, deforestation projects, the largest uh, iron ore mines, the largest copper mines, the largest factories in China, the largest uh, dam ever built in the world. So at the core of it was this Uh, epic scale that we're working on as humans, where we are dwarfed in the worlds that we are creating as individuals. And to me, that was a way, the metaphor, the way to show that surreal scale that most people don't have an image of because there's no reason for us to go to those places. And even if we went by them, they're behind barbed wire usually, you never get to see them anyway. So these are places, unless you go on Google Earth and, and scan over these places, you never get to experience them. So to me, it was the idea as a visual artist using photography to reconnect us and using all the things I learned in art school about what makes a compelling image, what makes an image want you to stand in front of it and to explore it in a way that doesn't because it's easy to take go to these worlds that I go to whether it's a mine or or a deforestation area and make an image that is uninteresting bland banal ugly or whatever you want to call it something that nobody would care to look at but to turn that image into something that people are fixed by like what is this place how can this place be look at the scale was the interesting thing so that we take a difficult story and wrap it in a way that we can visually engage with it and that, that these images become, I, uh, what I hope them for them to become is inflection points for deeper conversations about we and our relationship to the world as a we as a collective and what are we doing to the world and the scales that we're, we're operating on. And, and it's never a question for me as to you know, can we stop going to nature for the things that we need? All living things go to nature for things that they need, whether it's water or plant life or animal life for sustaining our own lives. It's not a question of going to nature for the things that we need. 
it's a way of doing it without destroying nature in the process is the most important question. That's, that's very interesting. I have a lot of questions for you uh, about that. But when, we, when you first had that, that moment, do you feel like you were alone in having it or did many others at the same time of you have it? Uh, it was mostly personal to me. I didn't know of anybody in the world of art at that time. There was one other artist in the States that was doing some work around this. But very few artists were working with this theme. So a lot of people were working with landscape. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of discussion about climate change. Uh, there was a lot of more discussion about peak oil or peak copper or, you know, that, that all of a sudden we hit a, a maximum of what we can take. Um, and now you have to go deeper and deeper, further and further afield, uh, making it more and more expensive. To, to either have oil or copper or iron. Those, so I was mostly looking at it from the depletion of the materials that we need, forests and all the minerals that, that we use or water that we use. Um, the climate change conversation didn't really uh, spring forward until 20 years ago or more like that. So almost, you know, uh, I was almost decades into it before climate change was becoming more and more of the discussion and that was the, the, the loading of CO2 into the atmosphere that, that we were doing to propel all the cars and all the machinery that creates, um, you know, the, the system that we, that we live in. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I can imagine that quite well, because when I got to this topic, I didn't start with climate change, even though I guess uh, I'm, I'm 22. So I, climate change was around and the conversation was there. But the way I approached it was initially hearing about biodiversity loss. And I was a maybe 10-year-old uh, child when I first heard about, you know, the, the severity of species going extinct. And so it, for me, it was really also this idea that humans were a driving force in the extinction of, of other beings, which disturbed me really deeply as a kid. You just can't imagine that those animals that you, at that time, you just kind of admire them, they're, they're magical, they could be taken away by humans. And so my activism and my beginning of to care about the environment came from that. And I was, um, I always say I was the weird kid at school that would talk about corals uh, when everybody else had no idea what I was talking about. Um, and then very progressively, I started just learning more about the environment in general and our relationship to it. Um, and then there was almost like a break where I became very much more interested in human rights. And I became interested in, in women's rights issues and reproductive health issues, and then in refugee rights issues because I lived right near the Mediterranean and we had many, many refugees coming on our shores. And so I had kind of that break away from environmental topics for a few years where my advocacy um, at a small scale, because I was pretty young, was very focused on human rights. Um, and then eventually, I think, you know, your brain makes connections that that environment that I cared about and those humans were really, it was the same kind of crisis. It was the same, um, you know, abuse and exploitation. And, um, and eventually I heard of climate change and then climate justice. And I was told that there would be way more refugees because of climate change and there would be much more biodiversity loss because of climate change. And so it all kind of came together into realizing that climate justice and climate change kind of aligned with the rest of my work. And, and that's partially how I, I got to this topic. Um, another way I got to the topic and to the topic of collective mobilization, especially with the strikes and with this idea of making it much more of a, a system change instead of just doing the right steps in my own life was when I tried to do all the right steps. Um, 
maybe many others have experienced the fact that once you start hearing about maybe your carbon footprint, you really go crazy and for a second you try to eliminate everything in your life. And so I tried to go vegetarian and, and I tried to do go zero waste and all these things when I was still living with my parents and it was almost impossible uh, because I just didn't have the option to do that. And I found a huge relief in hearing about people telling me what, what we need is a system change. What we need is to realize that we have those massive industrial places that you show in your pictures um, that are emitting so much more than what you at your scale can possibly control. And so what you need is to push for those whole systems to change and not just your own life. And that was a big liberation for me. And also um, it really set me up to focus on collective mobilization and, and systematic change instead of just obsessing over my own role in it personally. Um, so a bit of a, a, another evolution like you had. Yeah, Ali, and I think it's really what you're saying is really interesting because indeed we can do things as individuals and we all try to, you know, mitigate in, in any way possible, you know, our own footprint. But you're, you're absolutely right that until it's a design problem, until we design a world in which, you know, um, uh, like William McDonough says, a cradle to cradle, where you design something that has a loop that takes it right back to anything that can go back. Like, you know, I've got an aluminum can, but if you recycle this properly, yes, there's going to be some energy footprint to melt it down and turn it into an aluminum can again. But that is still better than going to a bauxite mine to get more at the primary source, to get more of that material to create the aluminum and then throw it into a landfill that never that is now entropy. It no longer can be regained easily to be turned back into something useful. So uh, the whole idea is that you know we want to reduce entropy. We want uh, we want to keep the materials that are useful to be looping into our world as much as possible. There are limits to what we should be taking, and 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 those are the the keys I think to. Uh, how we design our world through large government policies, through the kinds of products and packaging that companies are allowed to use and to then, you know, uh, embrace those and, and push both corporations. And I, I, always, I always say the, the two greatest and most powerful tools that each of us has uh, have at our disposal is our wallet and our vote, you know, and, um, and with those two things, you can change the world, you know. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned those because I think part of the youth movement has come from the fact that we knew our wallet wasn't that full, so we didn't have that much power and our vote, most of us couldn't vote when we started. And so I think we can explain a lot of the youth climate movement by the fact that we didn't have access to those two great powers that most people have. Um, and that's kind of where we came um, in with our very physical bodies instead, because that's what we did have is energy and a physical presence. Um, I'm wondering then, maybe that's a question that you get a lot, I don't know, but you obviously consider yourself first to be an artist, but do you consider yourself as much to be an, an activist? Do you not want to use that term? What's your relationship to that, that term and the idea of um, advocacy in your work? Well, I, I, I see myself as uh, um, an advocate for sustainability. Mm. I, don't, um, I, I don't position myself as a quote-unquote, card-carrying activist or environmentalist in that matter. I you know, haven't really uh, you know, approached 
what I do, and I, and for me, in, in many ways, uh, there's a practical reason for it. Mm-hmm. One is that the circles I move in and the places I move to to get the work I do are very sensitive areas. You know, I have I always enter through the front doors of corporations, and I have to enter through the you know through the foreign affairs of countries, whether it's China or any mm-hmm. country in Africa. I'm always at the highest level of diplomacy because I, they're letting me in with cameras. So I have always felt that my strength is, is to show more than tell. Because mm-hmm. by showing, by not telling and just showing, it opens the door for dialogue. I don't want the work just to uh, speak to the choir. I want to, I, I'd like the work to enlarge the choir. And if it's too... If there's too much didactic to the work, saying this is about a negative thing we are doing as human beings, and you should see it as that, it, it, it polarizes how the work can be considered, which takes away the dialogue, I think. It says there's only one way to talk about this. So if you're a, a quarryman or you work at an iron ore mine or you work at the oil sands, I mean, you, you know, they look at their work and they're saying, well, you can criticize me all you want, but... I bet you today you jumped in a car that had gas in it and went somewhere. I bet you today your gas furnace went on and because it was cold and, and, and it warmed your, your, your house. So uh, are you telling me that me providing you those things is something that makes me a bad person? And I don't think that's useful for anybody. And it doesn't allow the, the conversation to expand beyond the choir. So to me, it's, you know, even in the way I've approached the films, it's to, and we do get some criticism for it too, is why why aren't you more pointed? Why don't you, you know, call them out? Why don't you, you know, know, point at the bad guys? And, And I'm saying, well, number one, if I started doing that, then I need to step away, then I'm no longer able to make the work because countries won't let me in companies won't let me in because I will now be publicly seen as a an activist against what they're doing. Uh, so so that's a very practical reason. And then also on a, a very realistic, uh, you know, having seen the world and I'm now, you know, in my mid-60s, again, as I said earlier, I, I don't see how we as a species can stop going to nature for more mm. things. So it's so it's not a question of um, uh, of cease and desist. I think that's naive. I think it's how do we redesign our world that makes sure that that biodiversity doesn't disappear? Because if we take that out, we're gone with it. We go with it. That that not only, there's two really real huge threats on the environment: the loading of the atmosphere with CO two and the diminishment of biodiversity. Those two things both can undo the wonder of this planet and and its ability to sustain life on it mm. no that makes a lot of sense and it's 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 not that surprising to me but it always surprises me that that folks will um kind of ask for for you to do more a lot of the times i notice that once you do something people will expect much more from you but they don't expect the same from kind of everyone else um I think that your method and your approach makes a lot of sense. I really believe in the diversity of tactics and how complementary we can be. Um, I think my awareness of the issue came from the fact that there were people that could 
providing with pictures and films and documentaries about the issue. Um, and then I decided to be more of the activist uh, because I also believed afterwards when someone has the information, someone else needs to do something with it. So I really appreciate that you've maintained kind of your position on this of, of showing the problem. And I think we do need people to, to talk about it, but I think it, it has to be different people for the for all the good reasons you mentioned. So I'm, um, I, yeah, I'm not surprised people will criticize you from it, but it's funny. I've heard almost the other side. I've heard people telling me that I... Um, I'm so much of an activist that I'm going to have people just not want to participate in the conversations. And um, that's a choice I've made for myself, saying someone had to be kind of that that more radical voice and send someone else has to kind of be that balancing one. Yeah, and the other thing that I also can work on the sideline with my art and with my voice. So, for instance, when I did the big water project in the mid, you know, that was like the, the, the mid to, you know, 2015, 2013, that's when it came out. And, but what I, what we did is we aligned with uh, Swim, Drink, Fish, which is, uh, uh, it used to be called Lake Ontario Waterkeepers. And then we turned a lot of our attention to raising awareness on water, to fundraising for this group. So you can take an NGO group and say, we want to help you. Uh, we want to bring more support to your cause so it allows you to do more work. So there's other ways that you can work without being on the front line and the voice of it, uh, and but yet support with you know through you know getting people to donate and using your voice to get people to support things. And currently, you know I've been supporting. Uh, the Ancient Forest Alliance uh, in, in AFA in, uh, in in Vancouver Island, and they're fighting right now. Like the Ferry Creek, there's a big you know um, you know resistance to the cutting of these old growth trees. So we're support. So I'm trying to support that through getting other people that I know who collect my work to fund them, to find ways to support the kinds of activity. That I, be- that I believe and that we as artists believe are making a difference. So there's other ways that you can achieve it without being on the front line. Thank you for listening to Artists in Conversation. I hope this episode stirred something in you and we encourage you to share it. Follow Luminato on social media at Luminato Festival for more information about our programming. This episode was curated by Alex Rand and produced by Kimberly Pertel with production management by Wilson Lynn and Pip Bradford. Editing was by Lee Ken Agunbiade, and the music was created by G.R. Grit. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>